Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. This is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. If it can kill us or turn us into hell 9000s, but good hell 9000s, we're in. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, even a reverend. And we work together toward action steps. Together. Together. That's yeah, where the emphasis is. Together. I was, emphasi- I was emphasizing <clears throat> it. Toward action steps that our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. This is your friendly reminder. You can send questions, thoughts, feedback, cash, and envelopes uh, to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. I uh, got a couple people who emailed past couple days about us investing in their company, and I had to explain to them we do not do that. Wow. Yeah, it's very, I'd like uh, to hear uh, more uh, about that. No, 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 no. You, you don't. Oh, I don't want to hear more about that. Got it. Yeah, no, you don't. Did you just ask our uh, listeners to send us money in small envelopes, by the way? Uh, you know what else they can do? What else can they, they can do? join <laughs> thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter free! at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, this week's episode, Brian, is uh, Hey, Colorado, let's do the right thing, shall we? I mean, that sounds great to me. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, our guest mm-hmm. is Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate Mike Johnston. This is Mike the first in our series of uh, 2020 conversations. And just a reminder that, you know, these will always be considered and conducted under the auspices of how will this candidate affect the topics that we cover? Uh, the issues that are affecting, like we said, everyone right now on the planet or in the next 10 years or so. Yeah, we might not have your uh, favorite people on. Um, we won't get everybody, uh, but we have a select list we're working on. Uh, people that f- fit that that prism. So excited to do it. Uh, one note, uh, despite the best efforts of our incredible editors and producers, there are going to be some audio issues in this one. Um, you can check our Instagram. Uh, Mike was uh, on a trip with his daughter and crouching in a public library in Queens to try to get this done. So we appreciate Such it. Such a stud. Such Amazing. A, we appreciate it. But, you know, public wi- library Wi-Fi is, um, n- you know, not all it's cracked up to be. So anyways, thanks to Mike. And uh, please enjoy this conversation with Mike Johnson. Great conversation. Okay. Our guest today is Mike Johnston, and together we're going to ask whether Colorado can handle the pressure. That is, uh, atmospheric pressure, a.k.a. will the jet stream stop working, and political pressure, uh, a.k.a. can we get two Democratic senators in there, uh, flip the Senate, and hopefully vote in some semblance of a World War II level climate, clean energy, and environmental justice mobilization to make sure that jet stream keeps working. No pressure, Mike. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It is good to know that the fate of the planet, as well as the fate of the U.S. Senate, rests in our hands. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, that's the theme of today. <laughs> no big deal. It's all going to be go. fine. <laughs> um, it is. A, it is a pleasure to have you. Um, if if uh, you don't mind, let's just uh, I- introduce you uh, yourself to everybody. Let everybody know who you are and what you're up to. Uh, you bet. I'm so grateful to be on uh, on your show. Thanks for having me. I am. My name is Mike Johnston. I am uh, from Colorado. I'm a former school teacher and school principal. And then I uh, spent seven years in the state senate, and now I am the Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate race here in Colorado. And uh, as been alluded to, will be one of the most closely watched and we think most consequential U.S. Senate races in the country in 2020. I mean, you could say ever. Maybe ever, but again, we're the goal is to not make you feel any pressure here. 
Oh, that's right. We're we're doing a swell job so far. Yep. Yep. All right, Brian, let's do it. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, so so uh, we'll get into it here. We just want to uh, uh, remind everybody and let you know, of course, um, the goal of our podcast here is to is uh, to you know provide some context for uh, why we're talking to you today, and then we're going to get into some action oriented questions um, that get to uh, the the core of uh, why we should all care about you and what you're up to. Um, and what we can all do to uh, help and support you. Sound good, Mike? Sounds wonderful. Awesome. Uh, so, Mike, we do like to start with one important question. And I will say, as I said to the other gentleman recently, uh, at this point, we don't have a lot of white guys on the show because uh, history's <laughs> had quite enough of those. Um, it didn't work out so great. Um, so, <laughs> th- uh, basically, th- this better be good. Again, no <laughs> pressure. Anyways... Mike, instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, we do like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I am, I am honored to make the cut uh, to get to be on the podcast because <laughs> uh, I think that your general instinct uh, that we ought to be able to do more to get more diverse voices in the leadership is, is a great one. Um, I don't know uh, that I am vital to the survival of the species. I do think I happen to be in a moment and in a place in history where there is a tremendous opportunity. Uh, and what I think we've found is, uh, you know, when you look at, I think Colorado really is excited for this chance at real impact, which is, yeah, if you look at the U.S. Senate right now, which will control the future of everything from climate policy to the future of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to immigration to healthcare, you name it. And that the control of that body, what is supposed to be the greatest deliberative body in the history of the planet also, uh, has proven to be totally dysfunctional. But it was only three seats away from being able to function again and being able to actually govern again. And it's like that scene in, you know, in every thriller movie where the spaceship is about to crash and you have the last three seconds to get a, to get a hold on the handle. Um, and I think that we have these next year and a half to try to actually get a hold back on the U.S. Senate to be able to make sure we can steer this ship away from catastrophe. So I think uh, we are in a moment in history where I think winning this Colorado Senate race can fundamentally change the trajectory of the next 50 years of American history and of the world history uh, if we get it right. So that, that, that challenge does feel huge, but we have a movement of people in Colorado who are really fired up to step up to it. So I love all that. I want to go back to the spaceship metaphor because uh, it's amazing. Who <laughs> uh, of the people in that movie that weren't eaten by the aliens and that are remaining <laughs> on the spaceship, which one are you, would you say? And then also, if you could answer, which one is Brian? Are you the, are you the pilot? Are you the one like holding onto the spaceship from the outside? Are you suffering in some are you carrying an alien in your chest i am just, dead, i'm just, just so we're clear no, let mike <laughs> answer brian oh sorry sorry since my childhood uh, i wanted i always wanted wanted to be sigourney weaver in that moment so my sure. hope is i am the i am the adult captain uh trying to fight her way through the aliens back to the front of the spaceship um i think brian is the appearingly <laughs> mortally wounded colleague who you think is dead <laughs> but comes back right at the moment you need it most mm. to actually kill the last fatal alien. This is my so favorite you, conversation gonna, yet. It's going to be critical to the end, of the end of the mission. And yet you wonder, like, how is he still alive? It just, <laughs> You're right. The math doesn't add up. And it why doesn't. is he in his pajamas still? Yeah, still it does, we're two hours into a deep space sci-fi movie. It's like, yeah. you change your clothes, man. You're like Bruce Willis, put on some shoes. Okay. I'm like Bruce Willis. This is just getting better and better. He yes. might not even have legs. I'm I mean, why? It's true. He's it's pulling true. himself along by his hands. That's why you can't see. It's sad. You know that this is the last thing he's going to, like, he's going to save everybody, but after that, it's it. 
Like this is truly <laughs> the last gasp. Um, all right. So uh, let's do a quick little context. Sometimes this is super technical. Hey, here's how the ocean works or antibiotics or something like that. Sometimes it's more ethical. Uh, and uh, all our listeners are, are like the, the nerdy section of the Pod Save America listeners. We don't really need to get into the technicalities of, of how the Senate works and what's at stake. But to be clear, uh, look, I mean, this, this, this like I said, uh, I said in the intro, this is the first in our series of, of 2020 conversations. We're talking to presidential candidates, Senate, House, state, local uh, judges, uh, and we're going to do our best to amplify the folks that we think could make a big difference. So Colorado um, has two senators like every other state, which to be clear is insane at that point, but this is a, that's a totally <laughs> different discussion. Uh -huh. um, Mike would like one of those spots. Uh, and it's, it's important that you or one of your democratic uh, contenders gets that spot because why? Um, because we don't have control of the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell does turns out not great. Um, uh -huh. uh, it's, it's not going well. So, we need to flip a few seats in the Senate. Uh, Colorado is one of our best shots. And then Mitch is out of a job. Uh, the whole thing changes. But that's not enough because of uh, something called the filibuster. Um, and because these uh, presidential and senatorial candidates can talk all they want uh, about all the great shit they're going to do. But it really doesn't matter uh, unless we have a really serious discussion about the filibuster. Because there's a, exactly less than zero chance we get to 60 seats. M maybe ever again good times. But regardless, Colorado and these other few uh, states matter because of why? Because of climate. And as you mentioned, judges and civil rights and gun control and healthcare and immigration and climate and cancer funding and climate and clean energy jobs, clean air, clean water, all of these things that, for instance, the Democratic House has been doing since 2018 is just kind of throwing shit against the wall until we flip the Senate and, uh, and hopefully the presidency along with it. So we need Colorado and Mike thinks he's the human to do it. So the question is, is, is Colorado the make or break? And I want to get into this. So Mike, we talked about this offline when we were first introduced, but we do have an agenda here, which is sort of a prism for all of our conversations and, and the work we produce. Basically we only cover it or when we cover it, it's exclusively through the lens of will this thing or this question, wipe out the species, or on the other hand, upgrade us uh, to something from Star Trek. So climate is the obvious one, because no one will be unaffected. Colorado, certainly not uh, immune from this. Um, but we talk about jobs by talking about clean energy jobs, or we talk about civil rights through environmental justice, or medicine by digging into the diseases and treatments and cures that affect the most people. Uh, same thing with drinking water and artificial intelligence. So why don't we get the staples out of the way? Why don't you go ahead and spend a couple of minutes just kind of telling us your platform when it comes to issues like those and in whatever order floats your boat? Uh, I'd love to. And I think if I'd be sad, because I know your listeners are are the advanced players in this game, you know, and so I think as you people say, oh, there's a lot of most important races. People say, oh, Maine is important or oh, Arizona is important or North Carolina. And so I want for the for the discerning listener, why do I say your first focus should be Colorado? Nate Silver's analysis of this, I think, is the best, where he said, you know, the Democrats winning Colorado doesn't guarantee they win back the U.S. Senate, but losing Colorado guarantees they won't. 
So the reason is Colorado has to be the first place to flip because it is the most winnable seat. Uh, if we if if we don't win Colorado, then the wave is so low that there is you know it, it, there is no chance to carry the other states. And so we are a state where Hillary won by six points. Uh, that uh, Trump is now behind by 20 points in Colorado. There is not many Republican. There, there are no Republican senators left in blue states that are that uh, far away from Trump other than Gardner. And so this is why we ought to be able to, we need to be able to pick up this seat early. And you look at it, a state Colorado that is shifting more and more blue. In the last election in 2018, Colorado for the first time in 100 years won every single statewide office. So Secretary of State, Treasurer, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, Governor, House, Senate—you get it. So there is a big shift in Colorado turning blue. At the same time, the Gardner has voted 99% of the time with Trump, and Colorado is not a state where that fits anymore. So this is why it's not just that one of the, we're one of the important races. We have to be the first. And if you don't win Colorado, then you're fundamentally trying to draw it an inside straight with the other races, which, as you know, not many outs in that situation. So so that's why it's not just a talk. Point. That's why factually, you know, I always say the lexical ranking of your dollars ought to be first dollar to go to the presidency, probably second ought to go to Colorado, because if you don't win there, none of the rest of the races matter. That's why it's important. And I want to come back also to what you said um, about the filibuster, which I think is critically important, which is you just made the case for why I believe you have to do away with the filibuster, which is the filibuster was made for a moment in history where all you expected government to do was to just sort of stay steady on a, on a course and not crash, right? It was built for the ocean liner right. that had to just sail the ocean and not bump into anything. Well, that ocean liner was the Exxon Valdez and just hit the ocean, just hit, hit ground and is spilling billions of gallons of oil into the ocean. When you need the cleanup of that, you don't send another ocean liner. You send right. a speedboat, right? You send people that can move tactfully and quickly and surgically to get things done in an immediate and urgent way. The crisis of climate is far too critical for us to say we're going to wait to get it to 60 votes. You simply can't solve the scale and complexity of the problems that have to be solved in today's world waiting for 60. doesn't mean you cease to be bipartisan. That means I'll be aggressively bipartisan, but you have to be aggressively sure. bipartisan in getting to 50 or 52 or 53. But there's no, I don't think there's a path to, to meet the challenges of the moment at 60. Um, so I just wanted to underscore, I think you had two of the most important issues facing the country over the next decade, um, and you know, I love to talk about all of those issues. I am in the I am in the wonk corner, like you. On you know, I could do a whole show on any one of those topics you wanted to mention. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say for me, the big ones that I'll start with are absolutely has to be climate first. As you know, without that topic, none of the rest of the topics matter. It's mm-hmm. deck chairs in the Titanic. Yep. If we're talking about gun safety without solving climate first, and so and that is about I think. You know, I've had success with this. How do you build the coalitions in still a very much Western state? We have almost 100,000 oil and gas jobs in Colorado. How do you build the coalition in states like Colorado to be aggressive about uh, climate? We've done that in Colorado. I was the first to come out and call to move Colorado to 100% clean energy by 2040. We're now on the path to do that in Colorado. Uh, I think there is a way to do that at the U.S. Senate with a coalition of not just uh, environmentalists and, and mobilized parents and kids, but also business leaders who see it as not just the a moral thing to do, but the economically wise thing to do. So I think there is a path to that, and that has to be first. And then I think uh, also critical on, on, on the other and the other questions are going to be, how do we prepare for the future of work? How do we think about how we're going to prepare people for the jobs that are coming in a world where 30% of the jobs that they may be gone in 10 or 15 years, uh, where people are going to need to change careers 10 or 12 times over the course of their lifetime? How do we prepare people for that? I have a big idea on that, which I'd love to talk about. And then how do we think about solving the fundamental problems of immigration uh, and of gun safety 
And I think of fundamentally protecting American democracy. There is a set of fundamental democracy reforms we're going to have to put in place if we're going to preserve people's belief that democracy still works in this moment. That all sounds pretty good. Uh, I like your deck chairs on the Titanic uh, idea. And, and I think now we're, we're about 77 episodes in, so I think people get the idea of what we're doing. It's not that if we don't talk about it, we don't feel like it's important. It's more that um, there are certain things that are just way, way, way bigger and way, way, way more impactful. And it's really important we knock those things off. Not bef- necessarily bef- before those things. Like, clearly, gun rights is a horrendous issue. You know, climate change is not something we can go back on. The, the clock is ticking and we're, we're way past it. Way past it. Yes. And the scale of losses there will dwarf the scale of losses we're seeing uh, from, from gun violence, which doesn't mean you shouldn't do both, but it just means you ought to triage right. the most critical threat first. And this is the most critical threat we've ever seen. Yep. I think that's uh, um, it. <laughs> let's uh, start interrupt. Let's, let's get to, let's start talking about some getting, getting some shit done and then we'll, and then we'll take a step back. Your potential opponent, uh, Corey Gardner, um, who's been in the Senate since 2014 and was in, um, in the House before that, uh, actually has been on a number of energy and science and, and resource, uh, resources-related committees. Uh, what is his track record on those? And, and should you win, you know, are you angling for any of those? So, yeah, so I think the challenge is, you know, there is, when you look at what Gardner has done or not done on climate, the evidence is damning, right? Which is not only has he supported a president who denies that climate change exists, voting with him 99% of the time, not only has he supported everyone from Scott Pruitt to leave the EPA to Rick Perry to serve as energy, you know, he voted to roll back protections on water and air. I mean, he's been AWOL on all of the, the issues that mattered, um, and it's just not in any way been willing to step up and lead uh, on this in a way that is going to make a big impact. And so I think Coloradans deeply agree this is one you want to take courageous action on. Because the thing is, in Colorado, climate is not just a quality of life. You know, It's a way of life. If you live on the Western Slope and you work in the outdoor rec industry because you have a mountain bike company, or you're on the Eastern Plains and you're a farmer that relies on water, like those are not nice-to-haves. Those are have-to-haves. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think there is a coalition around climate in a place like Colorado that is really transpartisan, uh, that I think makes it possible for us to get big things done and is why people are so frustrated and I think feel duped by what Gardner promised to do and hasn't done. I mean, it's just so lazy to say that it's it's frustrating at this point, you know, but it, it, it's, it just becomes such an imperative. I mean, even we saw in Virginia where literally one vote can decide things, but, uh, you know, if we're... If we're for keeping the system where every state gets two Senate seats, like every one of those is just incredibly valuable. And, <laughs> so and again, important. since it's not overwhelming majorities in either, in either way that's right. uh, in the Senate, I mean, each one of these, when there's someone like that, that's not just not getting the job done, but is actively working against it uh, on again, the most consequential issues of our time, then, then they got to go. So where do you see you yourself, uh, should you be elected? Uh, you know, what committees are you angling for or hoping for? Where do you feel like you can uh, bring your experience to bear to make the biggest difference? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for me, you know, I think primarily about the policies that I care about most and how I want to make an impact on those. And for me, I was the first one is climate. So I want to be a place in a place where I can make that impact. Of course, I'd love to be on the relevant committees that have, you could, could potentially have an impact on that, but I don't feel limited to that committee assignment driving that, it is going to be an animating force of my time there is how do you build a coalition uh, to move the country 
aggressively towards clean energy. Um, and so I think that will be uh, first and foremost. If you look at uh, if you look at health, education, labor, pension, agriculture, finance, um, every one of those, the all-consuming question for them is still going to be, what are we doing to prepare for and prevent um, the onset of climate change? And so I think it's it's all encompassing. But I'd like to be in the spot where I can have. Uh, the biggest leverage on, on that issue first, uh, in addition to some other things I'm really passionate about, like immigration and like education uh, and like gun safety. Well, it's it's certainly always, I mean, invaluable to have, you know, take take away a lawyer and bring in an educator because obviously our education system is, is such a vital piece of this puzzle. So having someone with that experience who's actually worked in and run schools, uh, it, you know, it's like bringing Lauren Underwood Underwood in as a as a nurse uh, last year. It's like <laughs> that. I mean, yes. of course we need a fucking nurse. Like <laughs> this is the these are the people who who've been working in the system and can tell you exactly where and when it's broken and what's going to matter and what's going to make a difference. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check it. But as far as I've found, I think I would be the only teacher and school principal in the U.S. Senate where to get there. So that would be that would be a unique new set of skills. Wow. So all right. So I'm curious. Still talking about getting shit done here. Uh, passing anything like the the Green New Deal, whatever it ends up looking like, one massive undertaking or probably a variety of connected measures over time, uh, is currently going to require sixty votes. I, again, I can't say enough. Like that, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Uh, best best case realistic scenario, we have fifty Democrats and a voting vice president. So that's not sixty. That's fifty one. And not all of those people are even remotely close to super progressive, uh, even if they've got the Democrat label. That's just not how it works. Again, you agreed it's time to do away with the filibuster um, because, I mean, look, keep keeping it, you know, we joke is like, might mean like a small segment of the human population is like randomly draws straws to survive in caves until the next, you know, 10,000 years. So it would be great <laughs> if that didn't happen. Do you feel like, and again, I know they've talked about it some in these debates, which are just the presidential debates, which are insane. How do you feel about your potential colleagues we're, we're putting your toe in the water on the filibuster thing? Do you think Democrats will actually grow a spine and do the right thing on this? You know, I have talked to some of them already about this, and there are certainly some that um, oppose it, disagree with me. Uh, but their argument has been the fear is uh, what would Republicans do to us without the filibuster? And if they only need 51 votes, what sort of terrible things will they be able to ram down our throats? Um, I think we're already living in that world. Uh, in this world, inaction is the worst thing you can do. And so just Mitch McConnell's ability to allow us to do nothing is the worst situation we can face. Uh, and, and right now on an issue like climate. And so what I would rather do is I'd rather actually put power back in the voters' hands to pay attention, which is I would actually take, if you know, if you had a Republican majority for two years and they passed a bunch of things that people truly disliked and they showed their true colors that they're going to actually, you know, they're going to actually double down and expand coal plants and shut down wind and solar. If they actually did that, I think the American people would pay attention and vote them all out. Um, and so, you know, my, my uh, coach in high school used to say, you know, athletics don't build character, they reveal character. You know, and I think the same is true of leadership. Like political power doesn't, you know, doesn't build values, it reveals your values. And I'd much take a world where we can actually show our values, lead on them. Right now, all you ha what, where they fare better is a world where nothing gets done and everyone can point the finger at the other person and say, it's their fault. I'd rather have real action and real accountability than perpetual inaction. But that's such a crazy idea, Mike. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and you know, and the way the way I describe this is like think about the Kavanaugh vote, right? Yeah, that was, the entire country tuned in enraptured to that vote because yeah. lo and behold, the U.S. Senate was actually voting on something of consequence. As you all know, the real evil in the U.S. Senate is not the votes that happen on the U.S. Senate floor; it's the votes that never get to the U.S. Senate floor. It's the votes that never get to a committee hearing, right? I mean, there are senators who have served five, ten, fifteen years maybe you've had one or two bills of consequence ever get a hearing because the committee chairwoman or the Senate president or Mitch McConnell, majority leader, gets to just decide what vote ever gets heard and what vote ever gets gets called. And in that world, there's nothing for American people to actually weigh in on and pressure on because they know the best way to keep the American people silent is to not have a real bill, a real case and controversy for people to push or, to push on. I think that's, that is what has, has turned off most Americans from even following because there's nothing. It's like a football game with no football. It's really incredible. I mean, we've really, I mean, people talk about, uh, understandably and correctly, like what a horrific nightmare Trump is uh, in, I mean, literally pick from a multiple choice question, like whatever your topic of concern is. But I mean, the the power that Mitch McConnell has and has wielded uh, and the strategy behind it is, is, it's incredible. I mean, should we have history books in 10, 20, 30 years? There will be the the biographies uh, uh, will just be stu- will be stunning. I mean, what they've done in the, in this you know arguably one of our most important stretches uh, of elections ever. And like 2018 went great, and we need these 2019 state elections and and obviously the 2020 ones to go our way, or th- it's just going to be real bad. And and it's incredible the power he's had to 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 shift that. Uh, it is. And my fear is, you know, he'll go down in history with the Rutherford B. Hayes of the world to say, you know, you you took a moment in history and you corruptly uh, seized for power purposes a branch of American government you didn't have the right to seize. Right. Rutherford B. Hayes famously loses the popular election. Tell me if this sounds familiar in, you know, in 1868 uh, uh, and or maybe it's 76. No, it's 76. It's after the end of Brandt's term. And uh, he loses. He contests the results in Florida. Right. He thinks he, he wants a recount in Florida. Right. And instead, he strikes he strikes huh. a deal in the middle of the night with a kind of faux electoral college. And he gets the Democrats in the South to switch their electoral votes to him in return for his willingness to withdraw all troops from the South. And yeah. overnight, you undo all of the progress of Reconstruction. Right. Two years later, you have Tennessee has this idea of really, do you really mean it by the 13th and 14th Amendment? What if we just pass a, a law we'll call a Jim Crow law? Uh, right. And what is born is a whole, you know, it takes us a hundred years to get back to where Lincoln and Grant had us almost, you know, in, in 1860s, we had statewide elected officials that were African-American in the South. That was, that was a con that was happening already in the 19th century. And then Hayes gave up a generation of that. And so, yeah, McConnell's equal grab to try to take back control of the Supreme Court through unprecedented measures. We may have lived through, you know, what will tip the tide of a moment in history uh, that will be known for its uh, Machiavellian and I think soulless approach to politics. Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, analogy. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's true. It's, it, it could set us back. Um, I, hate, I hate to use the word forever, but it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. There's also some great reading out there on Reconstruction if anyone is interested in it. Uh, oh, do you have a book to recommend? I'll put them in the show notes. We don't need to get into it here. Sure, I'll add it to my list. Um, yeah, perfect. I, have one, I, I would I would add one to your list too. Uh, Jill Lepore, these truths. If you haven't read, I loved, which is I, I thought was, uh, was a great incredible. one on this era. Yeah, fantastic. Just, piece. I mean, you always think, oh, this this thing has been done so many times. 
But the way that book reads is just, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's like late night fiction. It's incredible. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Wow. I do think, I mean, but this goes back to your point earlier, Quinn. I do think it's not yet irreparable, but I think the stakes of the 2020 election could make it so. Like, I think if we True. reelect Donald Trump, if you send Mitch McConnell back to the Senate leadership, then, you know, you have two more Supreme Court seats that come up in the next four years. You have four to six more years of missed action on climate. That then could be a chapter in history we can't rewrite. I do think it's I do think it's only in pencil right now, but it goes into permanent marker if we don't get it right in 2020. Yep. That's just so insane to know that that's that we, we are at that point. Like we've come to it. It is now. Uh, Mike, you've been. uh really campaigning around Colorado for a couple of years now. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you've been in the education system, like you mentioned, uh, are there, are you getting a good sense that the, uh, what, what are the, you know, fine people of Colorado, uh, where are they on, on climate change and, and clean energy? You know, they are, there is, uh, I really think dramatic, uh, interest in action. And as I said, you find it in all parts of the state, you know, you find people on the Eastern plains who are conservative by other measures who right. are seeing changes in drought are seeing changes in access to water are seeing changes in crop or you know, if you, all you have to do, I kind of, you know, yeah, I was in person, you can see my belt buckle that has the advanced example of it. But if you drive through Western Colorado right now, one of the best visible examples of climate change is right in front of your eyes, which is there's a pine beetle that uh, nests in pine trees in Colorado. And every winter it lays eggs and every winter it gets close enough to freeze all those eggs and kill them. In the last 10 years, the temperatures have risen just enough that they do not get frozen out and they have decimated all of the pine trees on the Western slopes. Wow. So there are entire stretches of Western Colorado that are just standing dead timber, which as you may imagine are massive forest fire risks. But literally you can't yeah. drive through Western Colorado to go river rafting or you go to Vale or Aspen or tell you wherever you're going and not look out and say, wait, why is half the mountainside dead? Well, that's climate change. Uh, and so that's climate crisis. And so I think people, it is now so apparent to us on things that are right in front of our eyes that there, there is a very, very different and very powerful coalition that I think are ready for aggressive action, which is why we've seen Colorado move in that direction more than the rest of the country is it's both clear the stakes are high. And for us, it's everything. Yeah. Wow. That is wild. It's, it's crazy how, how, uh, how it takes sometimes uh, a people to actually see with their eyes before they can sort of <laughs> go, oh. But that's sometimes what it yeah. takes, right? I it guess, is. Uh, unfortunately. I mean, literally, you know, I, I had a, um, I had a uh, superintendent who was brilliant who did this. We were trying to pass a mill levy for our schools to fund it, and we tried it three years in a row and failed. And we were taking cuts every year. Teachers were taking cuts. They were freezing pay, doing longer hours unpaid. And finally, the third or fourth time she tried it, she said, okay, here's the deal. Every year I make the cuts, and no one knows we can't do it anymore. So um, we're going to mill levy. Let the voters decide. Just so the voters know, you know, I can't afford to keep school open 180 days a year anymore. So we're going to, I'm going to furlough the entire school district for seven days at the end of October. Just happens to be 10 days before the election, but you all just find someplace else to send your kids because we can't keep the school doors open. Wow. And the mill levy passed, right? Which is once people realized, oh, wow, like this place actually can't afford to keep the doors open. We better do something about it. Right. Their perspective changed. I think right now, unless you have that, oh, wow, the change is right in front of me moment. It's easy just to stay focused on the job you got and the kids you're trying to raise and the parents you're taking care of. But when it's right in front of your eyes, it's harder to turn away. Well, it's a, you know, the analogy is, is healthcare where you, the affordable care right. act is still stuck in, in so many of the courts, but here's why 
And it, by the way, it is not perfect by any stretch. And I believe was always intended to be adjusted and, and as such along the way, it turns out it hasn't been because we know why we've been talking about it for 20 minutes. But if you have for the first time in your life been able to go to a primary care physician for the past eight years, and then someone tells you, oh, Mitch McConnell made it so you can't anymore. Now, now you've had this tangible practical association, this benefit that someone is taking away from you. And that that's is right. different than when we were voting on it the first time. Uh, it's the same that, thing as, that's it, exactly right. you know, for the first time, someone in your life or yourself had a pre-existing condition and holy shit, now you have health insurance, right. like something that is completely foreign to the uh, U.S. medical system. But now, oh yeah, eight years later, we're going to, now that you're 68 or 72, we're going to tell you, you can't do it. Um, like you gotta be fucking kidding exactly. me. I'm not, they're not. So it's why it's so frustrating. It's being struck down by courts and by these judges that Trump's supporting, um, because the people and would and never let where, this happen again. That's right. And this is where, I mean, in Colorado, Coloradans have really noticed this. I mean, Gardner voted over and over and over to cut the pre-existing conditions protections for 800,000 Coloradans, right? Mm. So literally, I mean, that, that is almost a million Coloradans who have pre-existing conditions who with his vote would now be told, yeah, you're going back to the world 15 years ago, where mm. yes, you have a serious cancer and that means you'll never get insurance again. Sure. Um, and so I think people, that, that's the kind of thing people just don't under, how could you possibly be representing me and my interests sure. if that's your decision? And sure. so I think those are the things that are unforgivable. And that's why I feel like I've, you know, when I look at Virginia and, and we've got this election coming up in 95 days, um, where, where the whole House uh, and the Senate are up uh, for a vote, which is, you know, we got one vote and we somehow actually managed to to enact Medicaid uh, and 400,000 people got insurance overnight. And so we've got this election coming wow. up again in 95 days. And it's like, that's this is what we're voting on is yep. it's those 400,000 people who, who got to go to the doctor now. And now uh, it's up uh, about whether they can anymore. It's like, you're going to take that away after two years. You got to be fucking kidding me. So anyways, yeah. Hey Mike, talk to me about, because uh, again, we spend most of our time in Los Angeles um, where we don't technically have our own drinking water. Uh, talk to me about uh, like water rights. And, and I mean, the Colorado river is such a huge issue for the Southwest in, in the future. Um, is that something that comes up a lot out there? So that's, that's, that's appropriate. I just moved over to the Game of Thrones section. So oh, good, George good, good. Martin seems to be now good, good, good. Is. Uh, um, <laughs> So you, yes, you just, yeah, so you mentioned water. I mean, so water is an incredibly important issue in Colorado. We, we tell the joke in Colorado that, you know, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting, right? which is like water is, is one <laughs> of the biggest causes for fights in Colorado. But there are also really common sense things we can do on this. Let me just tell you one big idea that I've been working on, uh, which is right now we have, we have a place in Colorado where almost 85% of the water used in Colorado is used in agriculture, as it should be. That's what grows all of our food, supports all of our livestock. You can understand that. Mm -hmm. About 85% of the people live on the front range. And so we're working a lot on conservation on the front range, you know, water your lawn, less, et cetera. The challenge is the way our water rights are structured for those farmers is that it literally is a use it or lose it system. So let me give you an example. If you have a hundred acre feet of water, which is your right, if you uh, say you use an old flood irrigation system, right? You just put on the spigot, you put it into the ditches and you try to flood your crops, flood irrigate your crops that way. And you realize that's incredibly wasteful. And you think, oh, you know what? I could move to a drip irrigation system. And instead of needing a hundred acre feet of water, I'd only need 50 acre feet. If you did that and only used 50 acre feet, you would lose the right to the other 50 acre feet of water you did not use. 
So quite literally, it is to your massive detriment to conserve water and its usage because you lose the right to it. And so uh, all we want to do is say it should be the opposite. Market and those water rights where a farmer now, if he only uses 50 acre feet, he can lease. This is important. Lease, not sell. He can lease those water rights to somebody else, which means he both does better for the environment and he makes money himself. You don't want to have him sell the water rights. If you sell the water rights out of the basin, you know, if you sell it to mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. Cor- corporation on the other side of the divide, um, now you can begin to drain basins of their long-term water supply, but you should be able to lease it to other people in the region. So I think there, those are things where there are simple steps you can take that would dramatically change the incentive system and dramatically change the outcomes for water use. And I think we're going to have to do that uh, as our growth continues and water becomes, you know, water is the one non-renewable resource. Yeah, I mean, uh, no water and things get real bad. Again, uh, see uh, Los Angeles. It's, um, you know, yeah. I know uh, the Southwest states just struck a deal recently in the past few months, six months uh, uh, for the next few years, but it's still just, it's not great. It's a huge, it's a huge crisis here. And, I, and I'd say it'll be the most significant gating factor to growth. And people say, oh, well, how much carrying capacity does Colorado have? We're one of the fastest growing states. We love that. At what point do you hit carrying capacity? You hit carrying capacity when we have some developments that have been built and abandoned almost you know, like third world style because there's not a water supply to sustain those developments. Jeez. Yeah, it feels like that sort of stuff is really going to come back to bite us here at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh <laughs> Um, Mike, let's move on to, uh, I'm curious, how are you feeling about your, uh, about your fundraising and your polling right now? Uh, you know, we feel great about where we are. I mean, we have, um, come out hard and and early. We're working really hard. We've been all over the state. Uh, we have raised three and a half million dollars so far, which is, um, you know, we've broken records in Colorado on that. We're one of the things we're most proud of is we've actually raised from, Every one of the 64 counties in Colorado, which if you all have been to some of the eastern plains in Colorado, you can know it's, there's only about two Democrats in some of those counties. We got both of them. Um, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I think we both have a broad and, uh, and deep reservoir of support. We have, you know, we have three times more raise than anybody else in the field. We have more cash on hand than the entire field combined. And so we're the only one who's really kept pace with Gardner at every step. We know he's going to have massive support. I'll tell you, you know, like in the first quarter, we raised $1.8 million Gardner raised two million. Uh, I am not taking any pack money of any sorts. Never have and won't. Um, uh, so we raised one point eight, all from people. He raised two million. Of that two million, a million of that was from PACs. Uh, and so when you look at what the force of incumbency is and the special interests that are going to rally around him, they're going to be dramatic. Um, but we think we're in a really great position where there's overwhelming support from around the state for people who really want to see a change and are and are speaking with their contributions right now. You know, I, we had an event where. Uh, you know, we had a, a guy who was serving pizza at a fundraiser uh, who at the end of it stood up and gave $1,000. You know, we had an event where a babysitter came up and, you know, at the end of it came up and maxed out to our event, you know, to our event uh, because people are just so passionate about this. People are doing things they've never done before. So awesome to hear. You've got a lot of uh, Democratic competitors. How, how are we feeling about that now? What are we ten? do. Uh, the, Somewhere around there, um, you know, we have a, uh, there's, it's a great group of people. The wonderful thing about 2020 is everybody, you know, wants to make a difference. And a lot of people decided the best way to do that is to run for office. I think that's fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. So it'll be a great debate, a spirited one. Um, I think that we have some real unique attributes that put us in the best position to both win the primary and win the general. Um, yes, we'll have the resources we need within the fundraising. 
we'll have, you know, the, the political coalitions statewide. I grew up on the Western Slope, and so no one else on, in, in the race is from the Western Slope. Maybe I can win back those regions that Democrats have not won historically. Uh, I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. 22% of our state is, is Latinx of some of some sort. And so I uh, ran the first Spanish language uh, ads last year. We'll do them again um, uh, in the years to come. And so I think the ability to talk and listen and communicate in Spanish to win the rural parts of the state and to be able to have the resources to tell the truth about what Gardner's done and hold them accountable for it. I think that puts us in the very best position of anyone uh, in this race to both win this primary and win this general. So I, I like very much where we stand, but I have a great deal of respect for my friends who I get to run alongside. It's it's a hell of a crop of folks. So again, uh, happy that everybody is is fighting for the chance to get out there and do it. Um, Mike, we connected first uh, about both having young families. Again, you're sitting there holding a sparkly backpack in a library, um, which is how I, <laughs> I was at swim practice today, taking my kids to swim practice. And I, and, and I told a friend, I said, I feel like my job at this point is like chauffeur and hopefully get my work done in the minutes in between, I think. For some reason, I'm like still surprised at the end of every day, like when I haven't gotten my shit done. And I, like, I should stop being surprised at this point. That's exactly right. So we bonded over them and and being exhausted most of the time. Um, But those are the choices (laughs) we made. So let's, uh, let me, let's do something here. Let's quote unquote, go back to the future in 10, 20, 30 years. uh, When your children uh, unplug the chips in their brains uh, and ask daddy, what did you do in 2020 in such a momentous time, a crossroads for humanity to put it lightly, what are you going to be most proud of? Where did you really take a stand? No, so I'm so glad you asked that because that that was literally the discussion we had as a family six months ago, nine months ago. When we decided to do this race was, you know, Courtney and I, my wife Courtney and I were, you know, where we were, we didn't know clear path. We thought it was important. We knew the cost on family would be significant to do a race like this. And unlike other state races, the cost on family is significant if we win. Right? I'm if I'm in D.C. three or four days. That's hard on my family too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, you know, so I talked to my kids about it. And one of my sons said, you know, do you think you can make a difference? And I said, yes. And he said, then why don't you do it? And um, mm-hmm. was question, which was like in this moment in history, when my kids are going to look back and say, what did you do in the moment when democracy was most at risk in our lifetime? Like this is going to be like asking someone, where were you during the march at Selma? Mm-hmm. And are you going to say, oh, you know what? I had a dentist appointment that day. I couldn't make it. Um, or are you going to say, no, actually, in the moment where I felt like the fundamental promise I have to pass on to you, which is a country where uh, democracy works and you can solve big problems and we're able to actually bring people together to, to hand on the next generation something better than what we had. Uh, I gave everything we had to try to do that. And actually, you gave everything you had. You were 11 and you were seven, but you knocked doors and you drove to all 64 counties in Colorado and you talk to people and you made phone calls and you give up a lot of time from your mom and your dad uh, to do that. And that was a massive sacrifice. And I think one that they will be incredibly proud of. That's pretty awesome. So, I mean, you were, you worked in the schools and, and you're in the Colorado Senate, you ran for governor. I mean, you seem pre- pretty hell bent on affecting change. Uh, I guess thank aside you. from your kids. Yeah. Thank you. Aside from your kids, or maybe it is just your kids. Is there a specific relationship you can point to that was sort of a catalyst uh, to get you to where you are today? Um, there was, I mean, this was how I got into politics. I had a, 
there was a student in my high school named Ulysses, and we had I, this last high school. I ran three high schools, but I was the principal of the third high school when I was there. We successfully turned this school around from one that had about a 50% dropout rate into what became the first public high school in Colorado history where 100% of our seniors graduated and 100% of those kids were all admitted to four-year colleges. Wow. Uh, which was was success for us um, for about three days. Um, and three days later, I'm standing in a cafeteria, you know, supervising lunch duty. And Ulysses walks up to me, who's one of my seniors, who's the kind of kid, you know, like reads calculus books and, you know, composes music in his <laughs> like spare Brian. time. Yeah. Same, same. <laughs> and he comes up to me with tears running down his face. And he says, Mr. Johnston, why did you make me do all this? I said, what do you mean, Ulysses? He's like, you're, you're into college, you're living the dream. He said, no, I, I did everything you ever asked me to do. You know, I came early, I stayed late, I got good grades, I applied to college, and you know I'll never be able to go. And I said, why do you say that? He said, Mr. Johnson, I never told you this, but, but I'm undocumented. And oh, today in the state Senate, the bill just died that would have allowed undocumented kids to go to college at the same in-state tuition rate. So now my best friend, Jeremy and I, since second grade, have always wanted to go to University of Colorado. We're both in. He's going to go and pay you know, $4,000 a year with financial aid. If I want to go, I'm going to pay 30000 a year with no financial aid. And you know my mom, Mr. Johnson. Like, she doesn't make that much money in an entire year. And God damn. That, that was a moment where I felt like, I just felt like watching him just fall through a hole in the floor. It was like your own kid. You know, I'd known him for years. And... There was nothing left we could do. Like he was prepared. If teachers had done an amazing job, he was going to rocket at CU, and he couldn't go without a change in the law. And that was the day I decided to run for the state senate. And I said, if that's what it takes to change the law, that's what we're going to do. And so I, I left my school. I ran for the state senate. I was fortunate to win. And um, about maybe two, three years later, um, we finally were able to pass that bill because it had failed for almost. 12 or 13 years, I was the first one who was ever able to get an actual Republican to vote for the bill. Um, and, and because I found a state senator in the Eastern Plains who had fought against the bill for a decade, and when I'm talking to him about why he'd never vote for the bill, he says, you know, uh, listen, you know, I'm, I'm, he's, he's, he's talking, he says, you know, I, I coach my son's Little League Baseball team. I just think these kids have not the right choices. And I said, wait a sec, you coach Little League Baseball in a tiny farming and ranching town on the Eastern Plains of Colorado run by immigrant labor. Right. I bet you anything you got kids on your baseball team, just like the kids in my school. He says, no, no, I know all the kids on my team. I said, just make me one promise before you vote no. Just promise me you'll talk to the kids on your team. Then you do whatever your heart tells you. Right. And he says, fine, I'll do that. So he comes back to my desk on Monday morning, walks over to my desk on the Senate floor and looks in my eyes and says, so my third baseman. He said, my third baseman is undocumented. He's one of my son's best friends. He said, call the bill up for a vote today. And I did. And he became the first Republican in Colorado history who voted for the bill on the floor of the Senate, uh, which meant the bill passed, meant I got to stand behind the governor when he signed it, meant best of all, I got to get in my truck and drive back up to my old high school and see my former class of ninth graders who were now finally seniors get to put on a cap and gown, walk across the stage, pick up a diploma, hug them, know place to go. So that was the very reason I got into politics, and it's the reason I've stayed. Like, I deeply believe it is still possible to dramatically change people's lives for the better if you're willing to fight hard enough for the folks that need you the most. Well, 
Man. Good news is Mitch McConnell feels exactly the same way. Same way. <laughs> that was incredible. Uh, thank you for for sharing that. And it's just that's true all over, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, what a shocker. If only uh, there's a personal, you know, so you have a personal uh, story of something that happened to you, then you then you can relate and understand and, and see that change needs to happen. Yeah. And, then, and then it's not about you, right? Like, it's not about, am I going to, are people going to be mad at me? Are my poll numbers right. going to drop? Like, you know, it's when you are fighting for something that's bigger than you, you're incidental. Like, you're, you're just in the way. And so then my question is more like, what am I going to do in this moment to serve Ulysses or to serve the woman that doesn't have access to healthcare? Right. That's the real fight. And then I'm collateral to that, to that battle. Um, but I think what happens is people so often get focused on themselves as the story instead of themselves as just the vessel for somebody else's story, which I think is what politics is supposed to be about. Sure. Yes. Awesome. Um, Brian, so if you could I, carry that emotion into action, yeah. go. <laughs> Yeah, as I, you know, as we mentioned at the very beginning, you know, our our goal here is uh, to to get to some spe- some specific action steps that our listeners can take uh, to to support you and and what you're fighting for, uh, and and uh, how how they can do it with uh, their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So let's get into that. Starting with their voice, as always. What what are the big actionable questions, specific questions that the rest of us should be asking of our representatives? I think the things you should you should ask are you know what actions have you taken directly to push forward the agenda items that I care about, and specifically, you know what have you done to bring people on board that aren't on board right now? Like to say you issued a press release on something is not the same as saying you tried to find a way to fight to get the co-sponsors you need to actually pass it. So I, I think that you know this is about uh, you know and and when have you been willing to disagree? with some of your own you know, friends uh, who weren't willing to be courageous enough on this stuff to prove that it was worth it to you. And so I think that um, demanding that courage from people and demanding proof of that courage uh, is really important because uh, I think I think that's the way you can hold people accountable. Yeah, thoughts and that prayers isn't lovely. cutting it, folks. No, sure isn't. <laughs> it, it does not. It does not. You know, and that's, I mean, we don't have time to talk about that, but I mean, that was one of the other major battles I fought was, you know, I was in the state Senate after the after the Aurora theater shooting. And yeah, yeah we had a lot of yeah. thoughts and prayers. Uh, we had a lot of folks who said, gosh, too bad we just can't do anything about it. Right. And we said, we can. You just have to have the courage to do it. And so <laughs> we took on the NRA. We passed universal background checks. We passed magazine bans, which are our version of assault weapons ban. And the NRA yeah. sent hundreds of people to the Capitol every day to you know threaten us and protest us and tell us we'd never work again in the state. Um, and we actually passed some of the most aggressive gun safety reform in the country. We took on the NRA twice and won twice because... I was not oh, answering yeah. to the NRA member who was told me he wouldn't vote for me again. I was answering to the parents who were showing up who had buried their kids and yeah. said, you have to just make sure no other parent ever goes through what I just went through. That's all I ask. Not that big of an ask. I don't know if you saw. Not uh, that big of an ask. I mean, I think everybody saw what happened in Virginia Beach uh, a couple months ago. but And then the, the Virginia Senate tried tried to pass something and the Republicans wouldn't. An incredible speech that the... Virginia delegate made uh, his, who's um, I'm, I'm totally forgetting his name, of course. Um, but he, his girlfriend is was the reporter who was killed on air a couple years ago. Oh right! And uh. his speech, we'll put in the show notes, is just incredible. I mean, and it's true. Oh, it's wow. just like no, no, this shouldn't happen anymore. Like, what is wrong with you? Anyways, yeah, um, anyway. I'll send you, I'll send you. I, I I had the closing arguments on our floor debate on this. Uh, I'll send you. Uh, my speech from that, which was, you know, my oh, argument yeah, was, 
there's there are some things that you can do that matter and if simple steps we can take to reduce class size in heaven we ought to do that and that ought to be the first obligation you make uh, and i think that's one where that you can take action on so i think these are ones where yeah just sending out a tweet is not the question the question is are you willing to stand uh in the middle in the fire and and take it until until the world changes right I like it yeah please send that all right so uh, uh what about their vote mike when is the when is the primary there you bet. Uh, so our primary is June 30th of next year. So yes, all of our Colorado voters we need you to come out and caucus for us, vote for us. If you are from outside of Colorado, but you want to have an impact, also we'll be doing text messages, phone calls. People want to come out, spend a week, and knock doors. You know, it's like missionary democracy. Come spend a week and try to uh, help us help us turn this people out. Because what we don't want to do is have the rest of the world tune into this race in August or September and have a candidate who's won the primary who can't win the general election. And then we've lost Colorado and we've lost the U.S. Senate. So I think this the, the real crux of this race is going to be between now and next June. Awesome. Good to know. Um, and what about their dollar? Uh, what's your what's your what's your website, your URL, Mike? That's where can we send you bet. I'm, I'm Mike Johnston for Colorado. Com. And because and we'll I'm a school teacher, note. I did nothing for it. It actually has to be spelled out. <laughs> uh, and yes, we would love your support. Love to have you give financially. If you have friends, you can send out information to. Uh, we're going to need the resources to compete with with Corey Gardner and the Koch brothers and Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Do you think Mitch McConnell's the one controlling your Wi-Fi right now? Do you think that's what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> there are some people on my team who believe that my phone is bugged because it uh, is unreliable. So I'm not sure if Mitch is involved yet. We, do, we can't thank you enough. Obviously, you're going to extreme measures to make this conversation yeah, happen. So we really much, appreciate Mike, it. Honestly. And, and no, I'm delighted to. All you're doing out there. So we just last couple quick questions. Um, uh, getting specific, Mike, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? So, so I mean, one person that's actually had a big impact on my life over the last six months has been uh, the author Jill Lepore, which is if you read the book, These Truths we talked about earlier. Sure. I, I just think it, it tells the story of pivotal moments in American history where for the courageous stand of a few, you really either reaffirmed who we are and what we believed or you lost sight of that. And I think it's clear we are in one of those moments now where it could go either direction. You know, when the, when the version of this is written 50 years from now, it will either say that democracy came under fire and we set ourselves back a generation or a century, or it will say there was a courageous band of believers who said, we think America is something more and better than this. Uh, and they, there is still that chapter left to write for us, but we have to make sure we write it the right way. I'm, I'm down for that. And yeah, that book is, again, is really, it's, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. Might even be the answer to an upcoming question. Yep. Um, Mike, when, uh, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed, when you need some, uh, some mic time? Like when your Wi-Fi isn't working and you're trying to have right, a conversation. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, still, I like to read still. When I, so I do two things. One is I like to read, um, and I like to fly on airplanes because airplanes are, are like... Flying one airplanes? Sa- one sa- I don't fly. I just ride on them. I'm just saying oh, I like, God, I like God, riding God. on airplanes because it is the one uh, completely sacred space where you can sit and read and write and think without much distraction. So I have a little room in my office we call the airplane, which is a place where you can just go and read and write uninterrupted. And so for me, it takes a little, I like to come out of the chaos and have a little bit of time to, to, to think back. Uh, and for me, it's often to sit with a text uh, or something that I, that I find helps reground me in both where we are and where we're trying to go. And, and then the other one from Quinn's point is just, is time with my kids. So it's either 
you know, creating obstacle courses in the basement for kids to climb over, which is a ton of fun and just completely joyous. Uh, Or it's time to catch up and reflect a little bit with a book or some writing uh, are probably the two different kinds of solace that I find. I will say, I will say what should be on my resume is is I make a mean obstacle course. I'm kind of like a guy (laughs) where I can, I can make out of anything that happens to be laying around the house. I don't need special materials. So it's, it's probably my best dad skill. Wow. That's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, honestly, anything that exhausts them and keeps them busy is just the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's like mini American Ninja. Yeah. I'm I'm totally down for it. Uh, Mike, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what do you think that would be? Uh, I will not give a petty answer. Um, Good man. I think, um, I think... So my, my answer is what I would actually do if I knew he was going to read it, um, first yeah. of all, uh, I think what I would want is I find people are most moved by actual personal stories. I think it's very easy to retreat to ideology. And I think that what changes people's uh, hearts and heads is when they actually come face to face with a person whose story compels them. And so, you know, there's a great uh, Helen Thorpe has a fantastic book uh, about four undocumented girls in Denver who are winding their way through the school system. Um, and I think I would send him as if he read stories of these girls and their perspectives and what it's like just to be an undocumented kid in America trying to make it. Uh, I think it would have to change the, the hatred he's harboring in his heart for people that don't look like him. Um, and I think that would probably be the biggest change we could make. I love that. That's an awesome recommendation. Thank you. And and to to be clear, we accept both thoughtful and petty because that's the state we're in at this point. <laughs> but that was very thoughtful. So thank you. You bet. Um, well, listen, Mike. That's uh, it. We got it. Yeah, we're we're, we're going to get you out of here. <laughs> Holy cow! I, I apologize. Thank you for oh, all of your great. efforts here. Um, I'm going to send you two photos. One of me outside the Ro- Roche- Rochdale Village Queens Library, and one in the uh, in the book corner with. Uh, Yes, with uh, Stephen King. Awesome, you're you're it. the best. Uh, the people love it. Uh, Mike, <laughs> thanks again. I'm glad we finally did this. Look forward to catching up soon. Um, yeah, and, man, can't uh, wait to see you out in LA in person when I'm out there and you're back. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, have a great trip, man. Uh, have a lot of fun. The one-on-one time is special. It is going to be a lot of fun. I'm trying to convince my daughter that we're really in New York, and she's like, "But wait a sec, I can't see any of the big buildings." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's complicated. It is. A borough system. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to yeah. manage for a seven-year-old, but we're having fun. All right, Mike. Be good, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.